Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set, bef- and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do, the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we are continuing our sermon series through Galatians. Keep your Bibles open, because as we go through, we'll be referring to the text quite a bit. Um, I grew up um, in California, and my dad was a banker. And so um, in that context, I I remember going into the office. My dad was the loan officer and um, got to tour the vault and all kinds of fun memories. Um, uh, But I remember one time he he brought me to his desk and he showed me a $20 bill and and, uh, said, you know, do you see anything special about this? I'm like, no, because that's a, that's a counterfeit bill. And I remember it impressed me, a counterfeit $20 bill. They don't, they don't even bother making counterfeit $20 bills anymore. But at that day and age, that was uh, fairly common. And so um, he asked me, you know, do you know how you tell the difference between a counterfeit and a real bill? And, and he pulled out this sheet and it had like they, they give reports of, um, of the latest counterfeit things that are out and about so that you can know what to look for and, and, and the rest of that. And he said, but you know, the, the real thing the best way to know a counterfeit is to become so familiar with the real thing that, that anytime you hold the fake, you know it. You need, when you know the weight of the bill, the feel of the paper, the look of the ink, um, the printing, when you become super familiar, so familiar with, with the original that you can notice any change, that's way better than all the reports and all the counterfeits. You don't have to learn about all the counterfeits out there if you become um, super uh, familiar with the original, Right? And, and, and that's obviously a lesson that, that goes well beyond the counterfeiting of money. And, and this morning, what we're talking about is honestly the counterfeiting of the gospel. The Apostle Paul planted the church in Galatia. He did it through blood, sweat, and tears. He did it through effort. He did it through suffering. And he did it through love because he loved uh, the people in Galatia and he shared the gospel with them. People became believers. Um, and then he started um, helping them grow, right? And then after he left to go plant more churches, some religious guys followed him into Galatia. And, um, and basically tried to hijack the work, right? They came in, and, and the text tells us that they distorted the gospel. The good news that Paul was preaching to them and sharing with them, these guys came in and, and distorted it, right? The good news was very simple. Jesus lived the life you should have lived, and, and he died the death you deserved to die, and he rose again a new life after he paid the price of your sin. He was your substitute in judgment, so you could be his brother, his sister, in righteousness. He died your death so you could live his life. And you are forgiven your sin. You are cleansed of all of your unrighteousness when you simply believe, when you simply have faith that God is who he says he is and he's done what he says he's done. It's all by grace, right? It's a very, very simple message profoundly simple, and, and that's part of its complexity. Well, these guys came in, and they said, it's just a little too simple, right? So these guys followed Paul in and said, yeah, believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus, right? They weren't, they weren't saying, don't believe in Jesus. They're saying, yeah, you're saved by grace, by believing in Jesus, but if you want to grow, if you really want to have like a, a real spiritual life, if you really want success, if you want your church not to be like a second-class church, if you want your Christian life not to be a second-class 
Christian life, you need to leave the milk of the gospel behind and push on to the meat. And what's the meat? These rules. You need to start performing. You need to start obeying these rules. You need to stop doing these things, start doing these things, right? And for them, um, that was defined very specifically uh, uh, with circumcision. They were coming in and saying, okay, believe the gospel. That's awesome. But you need to complete that work by being circumcised and obeying certain elements of the Jewish law. See, what they were doing is they were taking their convictions about culture and turning them into rules of holiness. So they had certain cultural convictions. We all do. And what they did was they said, if you're going to be a real follower of God, if you're really going to to measure up in the spiritual life, you not only need to believe in Jesus, but you need to conform to these cultural convictions because for them, those cultural convictions became the measures of holiness. You very simply couldn't be holy if you weren't circumcised. Now, that's not an incredibly relevant issue for us today. Uh, Circumcision is not a hot topic right? That, that's being bounced around. Uh, I had a friend that, that went to um, the Capitol recently and outside was a very small group. It looked like about five dudes that were protesting circumcision. Uh, not a real popular protest, right? Not a big crowd, not getting a lot of attention, not a hot topic in our culture today, but that doesn't mean that we're not facing the same problem, right? For us, it's often believe in Jesus and obey different cultural rules. You know, the, the circumcision thing is no longer our issue, but, but it might be issues of dress or language or, or, or food. Eat these foods or don't eat these foods. Drink this kind of drink, but don't drink that kind of drink. Um, wear this kind of clothing, but don't wear that kind of clothing. We, we take our cultural expectations and turn them into measurements of holiness. And we start judging people how spiritual they are by how well they conform to our cultural expectations, how well they obey our rules, right? So if somebody is a follower of Jesus, but they don't obey our rules, we're like, oh, well, they're a baby Christian. (laughs) They'll get there, right? They'll eventually measure up, maybe. Or we just judge them um, as being carnal or immature. Here's the thing, you guys. Um, When we take the gospel of Jesus and we add our cultural expectations to it, we're distorting the gospel, We're making a counterfeit gospel. And the problem is the distorted gospel is the most dangerous gospel because it is so near the original. The closer it is to the original, the more dangerous it becomes, right? Because a lie that isn't obvious a lie can do the most damage. A gospel that isn't obviously a false gospel can do the most damage. Right? So when we come in, we're like, yeah, believe in Jesus. Yeah, you, you, need, to, you need to, oh, you're saved by grace. You, it's through faith. And it's a very subtle distinction. 90% truth, 10% lie is the most dangerous poison because it will be most readily consumed. The toughest counterfeit to detect is the one that's going to be most like the original. And that's why Paul is being so vigilant. He's ready to fight. Because the guys that are coming into Galatia are spreading a distorted gospel. They are taking the truth and they're twisting it just enough that it becomes poison. And it's worth fighting for, right? His kids are under attack. His spiritual children are under attack. And like a good father, he's going to step up to the plate. He's going to fight for them. Because he knows that a distorted gospel will lead to a distorted view of God and a distorted view of self. A distorted gospel will will lead to a distorted experience of the church. It will rob it of its power. It'll rob us of our joy. It'll rob God of his glory in the church. So it's worth fighting for. So as we look at this passage, we're going to be continuing. This, chapter 2 is, is Paul's continuing to kind of give us a glimpse into his early life, and he's making a defense because the Galatian uh, uh, Converts were being attacked by these false teachers, and these false teachers were were making some claims about Paul. So Paul's defending himself, not because he's defensive, but because he knows that that he needs to set the record straight. He needs to share the truth so that his reputation isn't undermined, um, so that the gospel isn't undermined. And so we're getting a glimpse into that early life. But as we look at it, we're getting a really interesting glimpse, I think, into the tension between religion and the gospel, religion and grace. And so as we go through this passage, that's the tension we're going to be pulling out. First of all, I think the gospel gives us a very clear purpose that's at odds with religion. Take a look at verses um, 1 and 2. Then after 14 years, I think that's 14 years after his conversion, 
Uh, I went up again to Jerusalem. So we, we learned about that last visit last week when he went and got to hang out with Peter for a while. This time I went up with Barnabas. Barnabas was an early church leader. His name means son of encouragement. And uh, I love Barnabas. He's a great biblical character. And I think he was actually Saul's mentor in the early days. I think Barnabas came alongside Saul and, and, and mentored him in some ways. And, and they traveled together. And, and, um, and eventually it was no longer Barnabas and Saul. It became Paul and Barnabas. Paul became the prominent one, the real leader. Um, and so Barnabas goes with him, taking Titus along with me. We're going to talk more about Titus in a minute. He's a pretty important character here. Verse 2, I went up because of Revelation. In other words, he went to Jerusalem, um, not out of curiosity, but, but because God prompted him to, right? We learned last week that, that God um, showed up and gave Paul the gospel, right? Paul was on the road to Damascus, a town to persecute Christians. Jesus shows up in a bright light, knocks him off his, his horse, and, uh, and basically blinds him and says, this is who I am, this is what I did, and it's going to rearrange your life and you're going to share it with others. So he gave him the gospel. Um, God now showing up and saying, okay, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I have a purpose for you there. So I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. So it was a private meeting, not a public debate. And he sat down with people that, that um, really needed to be at the table, right? And I set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, the gospel he received from Jesus in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, what in the world does that mean, that, that, that Paul is nervous that he had run in vain? What, what, is he, what is he worried? Why is he presenting the gospel here to Peter, James, and John, the Jerusalem apostles, and, and, and doing so because he wanted to make sure he wasn't running in vain? Well, we already know that he received his gospel from Jesus, right? So he's not worried about the message. He's not worried that he might be preaching a false gospel. He got the gospel straight from the risen Savior's mouth right? Jesus pretty much said, this is it. Now go tell people. So he wasn't worried about that. So what is he worried about? What is driving him that he thinks he may be laboring in vain? Well, I think as we answer that question, it's really going to show us the purpose of Paul's visit to Jerusalem and really the purpose that drove his behavior pretty much in every circumstance. Here's the thing. I don't think he was worried about his message. I think he was worried that he was going to find in Jerusalem a compromised church. What was it that he could find in Jerusalem that would have made his labor vain? A church that had come under the influence of false teachers. A church that had given itself over to a distorted gospel. If the false teachers were to gain sway in Jerusalem, it would have destroyed the early church. It would have split it right down the middle between the Gentile church and the Jewish church. If you guys think about it for a moment, it's actually really incredible the early church didn't do that. It's amazing that the early church didn't split into about six different sects, six different subgroups. It's crazy that it survived and as a testimony to the power of God, right? Uh, the church started out with a small group of Jewish believers in Jerusalem. That's where the church started. When, when, when the Spirit came down at, at the, uh, the feast and, and they went out and preached, it was to, to a lot of Jewish people and they stayed in Jerusalem for a lot of years. And then a persecution came and pushed them out of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas. And the gospel was being spread to non-Jewish people, people who spoke different languages, had different cultural values, people who didn't like Jews and the Jews didn't like them. Within the first generation of its life, the church crossed every racial, cultural, and social economic barrier. And it put together a wildly diverse group of people in a culture where tolerance was not a common value, in a culture where it was actually accepted and encouraged to, to love your culture and hate the cultures around you. It called all of these diverse people and then said to them, go play nicely together. It's amazing they survived right? The gospel said, you're coming from all these different backgrounds. You're coming from all these different experiences. You're coming with all your mistrust for these other people and all of your love for your own traditions. And when you come to the church, when you come to gather as the church, I want you to leave your prejudices at the door. I want you to leave your preferences at the door. I want you to love each other like Jesus loves you. In fact, I want you to put 
other people's preferences above your own. I want you to value those people that you didn't used to trust more than you value yourself. It had never worked before. There have always been attempts where people have tried to pull away from broader society and create what they would call like a utopian society. And invariably, what ended up happening is you get a small group of people that are highly homogenous. They look the same, they speak the same, they have the same values, and they come to push away everybody who's different from them. The church is unique in the sense that it is an incredibly diverse group of people brought together around something that unites them more powerfully than what they have different disunites them, right? This, this thing had never worked before, and it could only work if the gospel remained undistorted. Because you needed a people united by grace, not by cultural preference, not by rules. See, religion says you need to be like me, you need to act like me, you need to look like me, wear the same clothes as me, eat the same foods as me, hold to my same personal convictions. And when you do, you're in because you're familiar to me and you're non-threatening to me. And because I mistake my cultural convictions for issues of holiness, I'll start telling you this is what actually makes you right before God. We are more acceptable to God because we reflect each other in this way. If you're like me, you're in, and those who aren't like me are out. But the gospel comes in and gives you a radically different center. Instead of our commonality of culture, it gives us a commonality of grace. You were forgiven by the same God who forgave me. You had a need for a grace, just like I had a need for a grace. It's a message that would create a new people, not defined by race, not defined by language or cultural barriers or, or socioeconomic, all the things that we use to, to judge people, all the things that we use to value people, to look at them, to determine you're either like me or you're not like me, or I will value you or I won't value you, or I'm comfortable around you or I'm not comfortable around you. All of those things are now irrelevant in the church of God. Because the one thing that we all have in common is that we were bankrupt before God and we needed grace. And because God gave us grace, we now unite around our common need, not around the things that make us like each other in other ways. It's a message that would create a new people, not defined by race or personal convictions. See, Paul's fear was that the early church was heading for a young and horrible split and that, that this work to create a unified people of God would be in vain. That all of his effort to, to preach the gospel, this inclusive message of grace, would be undermined by a devastating split in the early church. What Paul found, though, when he came to Jerusalem was just the opposite. What he found was that the same Spirit, Holy Spirit, that was leading him and prompting him to spread the gospel was confirming in, in Peter and Paul and James... Um, the same need for unity and the same need for mutual valuing and, and, and a call for grace. Take a look at verses 6 through 9. 6 through 9. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. Paul, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, Paul's not being arrogant here or abrasive. What he's saying is he's, he's refuting one of the points of the false teachers. The false teachers taught that Paul received his gospel from Peter and the other apostles that he was a student of theirs, that he was dependent on them, and that he wasn't a very good student, and he was getting part of it wrong. And what he's saying is, look, I didn't come to them to be taught. I was, I was taught by Jesus. Um, I came to them for another reason. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Greek world, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jewish world, for he who worked through Peter, that's the Holy Spirit, for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, the Jewish people, worked also through me, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, they were the, the bedrock of, of strength in, in Jerusalem, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. They endorsed one another. They supported one another. They loved one another. They realized they were on the same page, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcision. So what we find is that this early meeting created a unified leadership. 
that the leaders found a commonality in grace that allowed them to navigate the difficulties of culture. I have no idea. I mean, this must have been one of the most overwhelming challenges anyone's ever faced. But they realized that it was the Spirit of God working in them to produce something that they could never produce. It was God giving birth to His church. The purpose that gave unity to the early church and to us couldn't be more different than the purpose that religion gives. Religion basically says, be like us or you're out. Have our convictions. Obey our rules, our moral codes, our cultural expectations. Measure up in the ways that we determine you need to measure up. Be like us or you're out. See, the gospel of grace says you are a radically diverse community. That's who you're going to be. That's who you are. But you are bound together in love. And you're bound together by grace. So it has a different purpose, ultimately a unity of grace as opposed to a unity of culture, a unity of love as opposed to a unity of, of similarities of, of, of cultural expectations, right? And that leads to a very different fight. When you have a unity of purpose, it leads to, uh, you're going to fight for what you care about, and it's going to lead to a very different kind of fight, right? So the gospel gives us something worth fighting for. Now, some of you may not like that language. You may not like the idea that, that we should fight, right? Some of you are like, that's just impolite. That sounds confrontational. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very confrontational per- person. But here's the thing. If you don't have anything worth fighting for, you don't have anything worth living for. If it's worth living for, it's worth fighting for. If you've never banged the table out of passion because you felt strongly about something, you need to think about what you value <laughs> because there are things worth getting passionate about. There are things that are worth fighting for. They really are because they're truly valuable. This chapter gives us a study of contrasts as we look at how Paul fought and Peter, James, and John, how how the apostles, the the workers of grace fought, and and then these false teachers fought. Take a look at verses 3 through 5 as we get a glimpse into this. All right, verse 3, but even Titus, now here's this Titus guy that I mentioned before, but even Titus who was with me, not accidentally, remember Paul invited him, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we didn't yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. All right, catch this. Paul chose to take Titus along with him on this trip. So Paul and Barnabas, right? Spirit prompts Paul and says, hey, go to Jerusalem. Paul goes to Barnabas, hey man, I think God wants us to go up to Jerusalem. Let's, let's do this thing. They're the leaders. They're co-leading together. And he taps Titus, hey, my boy Titus, I think, I think I want to bring him, right? This guy needs to accompany us. Titus is a Greek convert to Christianity. He's a new believer and he comes from a Greek background. And as a Greek, he is uncircumcised. Now the Jews had a number of names for guys like Titus. They weren't complimentary. The Jews referred to non-Jews as barbarians, Gentiles. The word Gentile means nations. (laughs) All those other people, right? There's us, and then there's all those other people. Sometimes they called them dogs. Paul purposely brought a dog to the party. See, in Judaism... A Greek person like Titus could have become a proselyte to Judaism. He could have come and joined uh, Judaism. But, but in order to do that, he would have had to have submitted himself to the expectations of the Old Testament law and the cultural expectations of the Jewish people. So he would have had to have been circumcised and he would have had to have obeyed certain el- other elements of the law in order to, um, in a sense, come into their circle of, of worship of God. And, and central to that was the requirement of circumcision. Let's talk about circumcision for a moment. Circumcision, um, while, while it is widely practiced in the West today, uh, pretty much every male that is born in the West is, is circumcised, it was not widely practiced in the ancient world. When God called Abraham, um, God said, you are going to be a blessing to all of the nations. Your seed, he was actually speaking of Jesus, your seed, your son will actually bless the entire world and your, your, your children 
um, will become as numerous as the sands of the sea and the, and the stars of the heavens. And, and the sign of this promise is circumcision. Circumcision was the cutting away of the foreskin of the penis. And, and so what they did is on the eighth day, they started circumcising their sons to show that they were within the circle of the covenant people of God, that they were part of the Abrahamic covenant. And that became a point of incredible pride for the Jewish people. The Jewish people knew who was circumcised, right? Paul purposely brought Titus, an uncircumcised Greek, into this meeting in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not exactly sure how the Jews knew who was circumcised and who wasn't. I mean, there's some things I probably don't want to know, but they knew, right? There was this sense. They had this little circumcision meter, man. If somebody wasn't circumcised, they knew it, right? It made them incredibly uncomfortable. They started twitching a little bit, right? This guy's not in the circle. This guy hasn't done the thing, right? And we've all done the thing, and this is bad news, right? So Paul brought him into this meeting knowing it would provoke them. Why did he do it? Was he unaware? <laughs> no. Remember, he was Jewish, right? He was raised, uh, he, was, he was a Jew of the Jews in his previous life. I mean, he was excelling in Judaism. He, he knows Judaism more thoroughly than anyone else. He knew what he was doing. Was he just trying to stir up trouble, right? Like, like a dude wearing a Guinness t-shirt to a Southern Baptist convention, right? Like, like a dude who shows up to a Reformed church and stands up in worship like this, right? Is he just trying to stir up trouble and make people uncomfortable? The answer is No. Paul didn't ever do anything without purpose. He wasn't the kind of guy that just stirred up trouble for his entertainment. When Paul does something, he does it with, with a purpose, right? So what's his purpose? In order to dig into that, I think we need to take a look at another situation where uh, another young man, another fresh convert, uh, ran into kind of the same problem. It's in Acts chapter 16. I'm going to put the verses up on the screen I want you to follow along as I read this. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. This is later. Paul's on a missionary journey. And there was a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, which meant he would have been uncircumcised. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. All right, this takes place a number of years later. Timothy is a new convert. He has a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Um, in, in ancient culture, your race was determined by your mother. So he would have been considered a Jewish man, even though he had a, a Greek father. And Paul wanted to take him on this missionary journey through areas where there was a high Jewish population. So Paul calls him in for a conversation. I don't know how that conversation went, um, that's a difficult one right there. You know what I'm saying? Like, I hey, Tim, uh, I want you to come along with me, man. We're doing this trip. Oh, yeah, that sounds great. But I need you to do something first. Right? How's that? You know, like, Timothy, how's he respond? Like, man, your boy Titus told me I was safe, right? Why does Titus get off, but I get the sharp end of the stick? Why, why am I the one going to the chopping block here, you know? Now, that's a legitimate question, you guys. Why did Titus get off and Timothy didn't? Why did Paul choose to, to purposely keep Titus uncircumcised? And why did, Tim, why did Paul choose to call Timothy to such a great sacrifice? The bottom line is it's all about what's worth fighting for. See, with Timothy, Paul would be traveling through Jewish territory preaching the gospel, and he didn't want Timothy's uncircumcision to get in the way of the gospel. He was going to Jewish unbelievers and preaching the gospel. If they knew that a Jewish man was uncircumcised and part of Paul's company, they would have never listened to the gospel. It would have closed the door before Paul had a chance to speak. And so Paul looked at Timothy and said, the purpose of the gospel is worth this sacrifice. And Timothy apparently agreed. And so Timothy underwent circumcision as an adult male 
um, so that he could travel with Paul and they wouldn't create an artificial barrier, an unnecessary barrier to the gospel. This allowed him to move into the circle of, of Jews and, and, and the only offense then would become the gospel itself. There's no guarantee they would believe it. There's no guarantee they would receive it. But what they're trying to do is remove the offense, the, the unnecessary offenses, before they have the opportunity to share the truth of God's grace in Christ. So they consider Timothy's foreskin a fair price to pay for the advancement of the gospel. They were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to suffer. They were willing to give up their preferences so that others could come to faith. Titus, on the other hand, Titus was not taken with Paul on a missionary journey. Titus came with Paul to a meeting of the church. It wasn't unbelieving Jews who were getting riled up. It was Jewish Christians, people that had already claimed to believe the gospel of Christ, people who had already claimed to embrace the grace in Christ. And to them, he wasn't going to give an inch. They were coming saying he needs to be like us, right? He's a dirty Gentile and he needs to be fixed. If we're going to accept him into Christian fellowship, believe in Jesus and do this thing, right? We got to fix this behavior. We got to fix this problem because he is unacceptable to us. He needs to be like us to be accepted by us. I want you to see this is the same exact fight, but in a different context. The fight was for the advancement of the gospel. The fight was for the advancement of grace. In one context, Timothy needed to be circumcised so that grace could advance into that community. In another context, Titus needed not to be circumcised because these Jewish Christians needed to be challenged in order to grow. Catch this, you guys. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is offend somebody. to challenge their ungodly religious scruples and challenge them to embrace love and grace instead. We put a lot of stock in polite niceness. But when you read through the New Testament, you don't see Jesus or the Apostle Paul or any other Christian leaders being bound by the weight of niceness. Niceness is a substitute for love, and it's a poor substitute because niceness often undercuts the power of love when we're afraid, afraid to offend for the sake of the gospel. When we are afraid to speak the truth or to do something that may rile things up, but in riling them up, we are actually loving people better. Paul was loving these false teachers by challenging their religious nature. He was inviting them to grace had he simply been nice and given in? Had he simply been nice and said, well, it's, it's just not worth the trouble? Had he been nice and said, this is, this is all, it's just all this conflict. I can't stand all this conflict. He would have undercut the work of the gospel in their lives because what he would have said to them is, you're right. You, Jesus isn't enough. Grace isn't enough. Your rules are necessary for godliness. And so he would have undercut the work of the gospel in them. He would have undercut the work of the gospel in the Gentile churches because it would have sent a message out basically saying, you're second-class believers. You're second-class churches. Until you get on board with this circumcision thing, you're not in the club. The most godly thing he could do, the most loving thing he could do was challenge them, offend them, he purposely invited Timothy, uh, Titus, purposely, because these guys needed to be challenged to grow in grace, not coddled and appeased. See, religion, you guys, notice the way these two fights happen. Religion basically fights to protect and cater to the insider, the ones that are like us. So we protect the ones that are like us, and we alienate those that challenge us. Now, outsiders are invited in as long as they become like us. As long as they look like us and uh, hold the same expectations as us and speak the same language as us, and, and then we, we come to value them, right? But religion fights to value the insider, fights to protect the insider. Grace fights to cater to the outsider, and often at the expense of the insider, right? It's not the insiders who need to be catered to. It's not the insiders, their preferences, their cultural expectations, what makes them comfortable that's important. 
What's important is that grace drive us to humility. And in driving us to humility, drives us out of ourselves in service and in love to others. Religion puts up a bastion of pride, of self-centered, self-focused, self-exaltation. Grace drives us to recognize we have nothing in ourselves. We're not strong because of our scruples. We're not strong because of our self-control. We're not strong because of our rules. We're not better because of our culture. Religion says, give up your freedom and grace to earn our approval. Grace says, stand in the approval you have in Christ. Stand in the freedom of Christ that you already have in Christ. For God's glory, your joy, and for others' good. And when you are unified in the gospel and you're standing in the freedom of grace, you become free to love people like Christ loves them instead of use people for your own agenda. Grace actually frees us to love people instead of use people. It frees you to have the right goal. And the right goal is love. The right goal is love. The common goal of religious folks is moral behavior of some kind. Some external behavior or cultural addition they put on the gospel, right? So religious folks are, are whatever their hobby horse is, whether it's a pet doctrine, a pet moralistic behavior, a pet expression, like, you know, only true churches only do communion like this or worship like this, whatever it is, right? They come in with their cultural expectations. And religious folks basically are saying these moral behaviors are external conducts or the measure of, of, of success, right? That's the goal. We need to get you people to stop sinning so much, so we're going to give you more rules. We're going to put up guardrails to keep you on the highway, right? You guys are, man, you sin a lot, people, right? So we're going to give you some rules to try and keep you on the road. You guys catch this. This is going to be revolutionary for some of you, offensive for some of you. The goal of grace is not to make you sin less. The goal of grace is not to make you sin less. If God's goal was simply to make you sin less, why do you think he left you a sin nature when he saved you? He could have eradicated it. Here's the thing, you guys. God's goal is not to get you to sin less. God's goal is to get you to love God more. Do you see the difference? If the goal is simply to get people to sin less, All you're doing is trimming the tree. But God's goal is not to trim the tree, it's to rip up the dead root of pride and self-sufficiency and plant in its place a root of humility and brokenness and dependence on God. And here's the thing, you guys, when you come to love God more, you will sin less. But not because of your religious achievements not because of your ability to obey rules, not because you have learned how to trim the hedge of sin, but because you are learning to abide in Christ. And when you abide in Christ, He produces the fruit. When you learn broken, humble dependence on God, He doesn't just change your behavior, He transforms your heart. The goal of grace is to get you to love God more. And that will change the way you interact with people because you will find your heart being freed from judging people and comparing yourself to people to actually coming to love people. See, religion always enslaves you to comparison. You're always looking at people wondering how you're doing compared to them. How do I do measured up to them? How are they doing measured up to me? And you're always kind of finding out where's the center of the circle, right? Maybe you're in the circle, but who's closer to the center and who's doing better? right? It's this religious treadmill thing where you're just running, running, running and comparing yourself. Grace frees you from comparison to love. I don't need to compare myself to you. I don't need to see how I'm doing measured up to you. That's not even the question. The question is, do I love you? It frees me from competition to community. It frees me from using people to loving people. So that, when you get to verse 10, you guys, at the very end here, that's kind of what we're getting at, right? So, so in verse 10, Peter, James, and John, and, and Paul have all agreed they're preaching the same gospel, moved by the same spirit, called to the same mission, 
for the same purpose, right? Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Only they asked us to remember the poor. Look, we agreed on the grace, gospel of grace, right? You go to the Gentiles, Paul, we'll work with the Jews. But let's make sure our gospel is leading to something, that we're working toward the same goal, that we are in fact increasing in our love for people. That we're increasing in our love for the kind of people who can't give us anything back. Let's make sure that the grace we're celebrating leads to a, a generosity worth celebrating. Remember the poor. So what we're talking about is, is the radical nature of grace. It causes us to love the unlovable because God loved the unlovable in us. It causes us to, to recognize that, that, that even though we're broken and bankrupt, God loved us and poured out His riches on us. So we're called to love others in the same way because God does. Who are we not to love someone God loves? Who are we to stand apart from and above somebody that God has humbly come and served? Here's the thing, and I think this is why it's, it's so pressing. The poor don't have anything to offer. There's no political clout, right? So you can't really get stuff done through them. They're not going to raise your status. They're not going to help you accomplish their goals. They are, by definition, needy financially, often emotionally, socially. And it becomes inconvenient and costly to remember the poor. It takes time. It takes money. It takes emotional capital, often without much of an obvious payback. But what I want you to see is that what we're looking at is the radical inversion of values that comes from grace. Religion is continually comparing yourself to make yourself feel better. Religion is always looking at people, essentially trying to determine how they help you, how they reflect you, how they make you comfortable with you, how they make you feel better about you, right? Grace calls you into a radical place of self-sacrifice, called love. And we come to love people, not for what they can do for us, but, what, but for what God has done for them. If God loved them in the same way He loved us, we are compelled to love them in a similar way. So, so why do they say, remember the poor? You notice that? Why do they remember the poor? Why don't they say, serve the poor, equip the poor, empower the poor, educate the poor? Why, why does He say, Remember the poor. Because I think what he's doing, and, and essentially what they're saying is, they're calling us to the natural outworking of grace. Remember that you are not other from them. Remember that you also are poor. That you're working from a place of poverty. That you are absolutely broken and bankrupt in yourself. And God, in His grace, poured out His riches upon you. Remember that you are seeing them eye to eye. That you are one with them. When you see those who suffer from socioeconomic injustice, remember that you are to identify with them. Don't dehumanize them. Don't minimize them. Don't ignore them. Don't think of yourself as better or above them because you don't have anything that you weren't given. You don't have anything that you weren't given. Some of you are like, Steve, man, I've worked hard in my life, right? I, I'm not saying you haven't, but what do you have that you weren't given? Did you choose to be born into a family of privilege? Did you choose to be born into your skin color? Did you choose to be born into parents that loved or equipped you or, or someone else that invested? Did you choose to be born into the level of intelligence that you have? Did you choose? Is any of this from you? Or are you simply working with what you already were given? You want to be a self-made man, speak something into existence. The day you can speak something into existence is the day I will say you are a self-made man. Until then, you are simply working with the raw materials that God has already spoken into existence for you. 
You have nothing that you weren't given, which means you have nothing to be proud of. Nothing that exalts you over others. Nothing that puts you in a place where you can look down on others and give to them out of your bounty as if you were somehow superior. What he's saying is, remember, you're poor. And God identified with you. Remember that God loved you in your poverty and, and, and wants to love people through you. So this takes an interesting twist when we actually look at it and think about it in the context of, of this actual conversation that we have in uh, Galatians 2. It's very challenging in and of itself. But, but remember this, you guys. The poor in this context were, of course, the general poor, but very specifically were also the Jerusalem believers. When the persecution came on the early church in Jerusalem, they were driven into poverty because they lost economic uh, privileges. They were excluded from certain economic benefits. And, and the church in Jerusalem was driven into poverty. And we see that that actually becomes a major theme through the New Testament as the rest of the church comes together to support the poor in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was, was suffering in poverty. You know, these false teachers that came in to spy out Paul's liberty, where did they come from? the church in Jerusalem. Peter was basically saying to Paul, I want you to love and serve these guys that are opposing you, that are seeking to undermine you. Those people that are your religious enemies, I want you to love them. And Paul says in verse 10, this is the very thing I was eager to do. Paul was quick. He was just as quick to give love and grace to his religious enemies as he was to his non-religious ones. Now, a word of coaching for some of you. Some of you come out of super restrictive church backgrounds where you felt judged and restricted. Maybe even threw around the term legalistic. I don't know. And you've gotten out of there and you are celebrating grace and you are loving the new experience that you have in freedom in Christ. And you have felt justified in turning around and adopting an attitude of judgment toward those who used to judge you. I remember going to a conference um, as a young believer, and um, I was pretty rough at the time. And, and, and I was looking around at all these guys who were suited up and carrying 50-pound Bibles. And, and, and some of them, even when they prayed out loud, used these and thous. And, and I was put off. I mean, honestly, I was like, who are you crazy people? I mean, really... Uh, who are you trying to impress, right? I'm a brand new believer and I'm not finding you very impressive. Maybe you're trying to impress each other. Is, that, is this a private club where you adopt a secret language and, and a secret handshake and, and you just try to impress each other? And here I am railing in my heart against them when the Spirit of God graciously gave a glimpse of myself to me. And I realized that here I was sitting in this arrogant place of condemnation, condemning those that I assume were condemning me. I was judging those who I thought were being judgmental. I was culturally superior while judging their cultural superiority. Hmm. By God's grace, I was able to see my own heart, how ugly it was. And, and honestly, it was, it, was a, it was not a pleasant revelation for me. And as I went over the course of that conference, I got to sit down and have conversations with some of these dudes. And I found out that some of them loved Jesus way more than I did. And for a lot longer than I ever had. And I was broken. And I realized that in my anti-religion, anti-Phariseeism, I was becoming a Pharisee. It had to be tempting for Paul to write off these Jewish believers who were struggling with their freedoms in Christ. It had to be tempting for Paul to lash out at those who were undermining him who were making waves for Gentile converts. And there were some false teachers that needed to be rebuked, and there were many other weak Christians who were being carried along with them, but he didn't. The same grace that drove him to love the Gentiles and to win them to Christ softened his heart toward his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he was eager to give them the generosity of grace as well. So you guys, as we wrap up, I want to throw some questions up and ask you to do a little bit of heart work as you're thinking about how this applies to you. First of all, what is the purpose that drives your life? Paul said that he didn't want his labor to be in vain. He had a purpose that was driving his life, and he didn't want it to be a vain purpose, one that was empty of meaning or consequence. What is the purpose that drives your life? And is it worth the investment of your life? Because you only have one life to invest.
Are you investing in grace? Are you investing in your growth in Christ? Are you investing in seeking to experience and the glory of God and increase the experience of glory of God in the lives of others? Or are you seeking to advance your own glory in your own kingdom? Secondly, are you fighting for your agenda or God's? In the church, like these false teachers, but beyond that, in your home, in your workplace, in your relationships with people outside of the church. It's religious people that draw strict lines between sacred and secular so that they can live one way in one place and another way in another place. There are no lines. You are who you are at all times, and you are called to live a life of integrity, holistically working out the gospel in every area of your life. Are you fighting for your agenda or God's in every area of your life? Thirdly, how is God calling you to remember the poor? Or more specifically, whom is God calling you to love and grace? Who right now are you putting in the category of other and giving yourself the freedom not to love them, not to show grace to them, not to remember that you are a mutual dependent on grace with them? You guys, we're going to go into time of response. I'm going to ask you to look at the questions, pray. Let the Spirit of God speak to your heart. In this time, we're also going to take our offering. This is a chance for our members and regular attenders to give joyfully and sacrificially. We partner together financially to advance the work of the gospel through this church into this community so that lives can be changed, people can hear about grace and and be set free. So I encourage you to give generously and and joyfully and, and in worship to God. If you're a guest with us, um, there's a worship response card in your bulletin. We would love it if you would fill that out and drop it in the basket when it comes around. All of you, if you have prayer requests, put those on there, drop them in. We would love to pray with you and for you over the coming week. Uh, We pray over those requests every week. If you're a first-time guest with us, we have a gift for you at Connection Point. So just visit the table, Connection Point, in the lobby, and and they'll be happy to, to give you that gift and just to honor you for joining us this morning. Let me pray for us. And we'll go into our time of response. We'll share communion in a moment, uh, but we'll explain more when we get there. Let's pray for now. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of grace and that in your grace, you call us to the freedom of love, uh, the freedom of, uh, man, just the radical freedom of grace, (laughs) that we are freed to no longer work for our approval. We can rest instead in the approval we already have in Christ. I pray for my friends, I pray for myself, Lord, that you will break our hearts with your love. That you will inflame our hearts in response. When we see Christ, the Son of God, brought low, the one who knew no sin, made sin for us, the one who existed in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped and held on to selfishly, but instead emptied himself, that he might take on the form of a servant to the point of death, even death on the cross. When we look at him, may our hearts break in love, in response to your love. And having been broken, may the sweet aroma of humility be let loose in our lives that allows us to simply walk in dependence, that you might get the glory and we might get the joy.